0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Berkeley, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Berkeley. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Berkeley. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning. And welcome, everyone. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Today is Black Friday, and so uh, we expect to have very few people on the webinar this morning. But the good news is I'm recording it, and I will publish it to the podcast and to the website afterwards. So today's kind of a really crazy, exciting class because this is sort of the beginning of a long thread or a long story of a bunch of different classes that we've got coming down the pipeline. And uh, today is sort of like the introduction. It's like day one of many. So uh, we're calling this Real Estate Nomad in Your City. And by your city, I'm going to allow you to pick Your city out of a list of about 300 cities that we've already done modeling for, and if for some reason you're like, "Hey, listen, we really need to have whatever city it is," I probably could add another one if it's big enough. You know, I grew up in a a city that had a population of about 300 people, and I can assure you, I'm not doing all the modeling and everything else for a city that size. But you know, I don't know. I think we cut it off around 50,000 population. There's probably some on there that are a little less than that, but that was sort of the threshold. So. So I'm going to jump right into the presentation. Um, If there are any questions throughout, please uh, let me know. Um, so, So here's what we're going to start with. First of all, before we get too far down the line, what is the Nomad real estate investing strategy? You may have seen the title and you're like, you know, what's Nomad? Never heard of that before. And so we're going to start here, but realize that just because this particular strategy isn't interesting to you, like you're like, oh, I'm ne- I never do that, or why would someone ever do that? Realize we're using this as a starting point, because I think it's one of the better strategies for a lot of folks. And then what we're going to do is we're going to compare this strategy to all the other strategies that you've ever heard of um, in real estate investing. And I'll show you how they compare. And then you can make an educated decision as to which one you'd rather do based on the actual numbers and the details. So what is the nomad strategy? So if you've never heard it before, nomad strategy is you buy a home as an owner-occupant, you move into the property, you get owner-occupant financing, which is usually nothing or very little down, and you get a better interest rate than if you bought the property with 20% down or 25% down or 15% down as a non-owner-occupant, as an investment property. So you get a better interest rate and lower down payment, but by moving into the property, by getting an owner-occupant loan and moving into the property, you are required by the lender to live there for one year. When you go and get your loan, you're going to be required to sign a sheet of paper at closing that says, I agree to live in the property for at least a year. But after the year is up, you can convert the property to a rental. You can decide to keep it and convert that property to a rental property and then move into your next property with you know, nothing down or 3.5% down or 5% down or 3% down or if you want to, 10, 15, 20% down, and then live there for another year and then convert the other one to a rental. So the process for Nomad is you buy a home as an owner-occupant, you live there for at least a year to to comply with the uh, requirements of the lender, then you buy a new home, move into that one, you convert the previous to a rental, and you repeat this process until you reach the number of rental properties that you desire, whether that's one or five or 10 or 20, it doesn't matter. It's really up to you as to how many you want to do. Okay, so, Nomad in Your City. So my favorite part, I, I like collecting old real estate investing books. I like reading real estate investing strategies. I like reading you know, books and listening to podcasts and courses on real estate investing. And my very favorite part of all these real estate investing books and courses is when they model how the investing strategy would have performed. So a a classic one of this is if you've you've not read it before, it's probably worth picking up. Um, The strategy is a little bit dated and the numbers are definitely dated, but the book is called Creating Wealth by Robert Allen. And there's a whole section in that book where he lays out his plan for buying. I think the plan, it's been a while since I read it, but I think the plan was to buy 20 rentals and then sell off 10 of them and pay off the first 10. And I was fascinated by just reading that section of the book and the story of how you do it and the math behind it and how it all worked out and everything like that. However, the problem I had, even when it was written, it was, is that was not my market. That was a different real estate market than I was, had different prices, different rents, different taxes, different insurance, um, different discounts than I thought I could get at the time, uh, different interest rates. So all of the numbers were different. And so I love these parts of these books. The challenge was, it never applied to me. And so especially when I go back and I read old books, I was always fascinated by this idea of modeling things and how would that work today? If, you know, you go buy a book and someone's been doing a strategy for five or 10 or 15 or 20 years and then you decide to buy the book and you're like, oh man, that strategy doesn't work in today's market because the prices are three times what they were or interest rates are half of what they were. Interest rates are two times what they were. It's just not the same. So I was really frustrated with that. I've come up with a solution. The solution is, that I will go ahead and do all the modeling for you with the current numbers for your city and the current market interest rates and everything else that's going on. So in this class, I'm going to walk you through the assumptions that we use when doing the modeling for a really basic nomad real estate investing strategy in your city. And I've modeled over 300 different US cities for this presentation. So pick the city that is closest to what your numbers are, and then you can copy that one to whatever the closest thing to your situation is. and if you, um, if you need to make some slight tweaks to the assumptions to better model your own unique situation, that is what you can do. So you're like, hey, look, James is starting this guy out with you know, $10,000 in savings or you know he makes $8,000 a month in income. And I don't have that. I have $4,000 a month that are $4,000 that I've saved up and I make $9,000 a month or $4,000 a month. Whatever your numbers are, you can change them to see how the assumptions change. So for Modeling Nomad in your city, Uh, And I'm actively working on these pages. So if you go here and if you listen to the recording afterward and you're like, hey, that page doesn't look the same. Yeah, I'm working on it. So just realize that the screenshots I'm showing are like of today, but realize that they may change over time. I'm going to put a direct link to each city in the show notes. But for the live version, if you're on the the webinar live right now, you can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model and pick your city. There are 300 US cities grouped there by state that I've done modeling for. Just pick your city from the list and select the keyword model. It's like a little button with a little uh, orange or a yellow um, decahedron or something like that. A little kind of three dimensional shape for what we're doing for modeling. And then select your city and you can follow along with what I'm doing today. So um, once you get into your city page, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to select the link that says Baseline Nomad. There's a whole bunch of other links that I've done modeling for already, but we're not covering those today. Uh, Believe me, this one's going to be long enough. The class is going to be long enough. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, there's crazy stuff going on. But go there and click on the link for Baseline Nomad. It's located right beneath where all the podcast episodes are. And if you click on that, you'll see the page that we're primarily going to cover today with all the assumptions. And that's what we're going to focus on. Um, So, Go ahead and do that if you're kind of on live or if you're in the recording. If you're listening to this, you want to go back and do it later, you can go do it later. Just go look at the show notes later. You can go link through there. You'll get plenty of stuff from just listening to the audio if you're listening to just the audio. But if you're on live and you want to go check it out, you can. When you go to that page, there'll be two different versions of the page, whether you're logged in or whether you're not logged in. You can go create a free account, log in if you want to, and see the logged in version. I'm primarily going to focus in on the logged in version. But if you go there and you see the not logged in version, just go ahead and create a free account, and then you'll be able to see the logged in version and do that. Okay. So today is all about the Nomad strategy and modeling the assumptions and what the assumptions are for that for all cities. So, number one, we are modeling this for 60 years so we're starting today and we're going to move out 60 years in the future and you may say to me james you know i'm 70 years old 60 years is too long great go change it or you may say to me james i'm 20 years old 60 years only gets me to 80 and i think i'm going to live to be 150 no problem you can go change that too okay so all these assumptions that we're going to talk about you could change but i'm telling you what the assumptions we use that i use for each city so that you can see exactly what we did I used a 20% effective income tax rate. This is not your tax bracket. This is like your overall average of all the rates you know, weighted by what they are, your effective income tax rate. I use a 3% inflation rate. And as soon as I say that, people are like 3%. inflation's like 8% right now. That's what we've been seeing. That's where you're in this period of massive inflation. 3% doesn't seem reasonable. Yeah, I know. But 3% is what the long term average has been. The Fed has stated they want to keep the inflation rate at 2% per year. But we've been seeing historically over a very long period of time, about 3%. So I use 3% just to kind of get an average for the whole thing. Of course, you could change it if you want to. Now, I've also used 7% mortgage interest rates. And if you're listening to this a year or two or three or four after, and you're like seven percent, were interest rates really that high? Yes, they're about seven percent right now. Actually, they've come down a little bit in the last week or so, and so the rates have dropped the tiny bit. And I probably will go rerun these things in order to change the rates. But I modeled this like I don't know. I think I ran this about a week or two ago, and I used seven percent because that's what the rates were at the time. Um, and and as they change. I can go back through and rerun all these for all the different cities, so it'll change your numbers. So another thing to point out, if you're going here and you're looking at a chart and you're saying, you know, James, you said that you know, X number of people or this dollar amount was true for this, realize that these numbers can change over time as I go back in and I change the interest rate so that I update it for you and whatever is going on in the current market. Okay, uh, it does take, I wanna point out, it, it's not like I click a button and all these things change instantly in order for me to remake all these models and do all the math again, it takes many, many hours. So this is not something that I would, and it, it, like, it cripples the server when I'm doing all the computations and creating all these charts and doing all the analysis for you. So it's not like I'm going to do this change every day. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, interest rates are uh, an eighth of a point higher. I'm going to rerun everything for you. No, I'm going to wait for it to change pretty significantly before we get to that point. Okay. And then I've also used a 4% Yearly safe withdrawal rate as my assumption here. Some people would argue 4% is too conservative. Some people would argue it's way too aggressive. 4% though is is the idea is if you have a certain amount of money, like a million dollars in the bank, invest in stocks and bonds, let's say, um, and you want to know how much you can, in quote, safely remove each year, safely withdraw each year to spend. This is the amount that we've defined. There's a whole, I'll, I'll do much more classes on this and you'll kind of hear about it as an idea. But the idea is that I used 4%. If you think it's too conservative, go ahead and bump it up. If you think it's not conservative enough, you can kind of crank it down and it will rerun all the math. Okay. I got to start telling you about where things change. How my how my calculations change based on what city you're in. So I, I use this idea as your target monthly income in retirement. How much do you need to be making from your investments in order for you to consider yourself to be financially independent? So what we refer to as your target monthly income retirement. And I've got kind of two flavors of this. I've got the minimum target monthly income retirement, which is sort of like lean fire, if you're familiar with that concept, or some people just call it fire. And then the ideal target monthly income retirement, what people might call a fat fire, or like you're living it up really, really well in retirement. You've got more than enough to kind of live meet your total uh, kind of criteria there. So we either look at minimum target monthly income retirement or the ideal target monthly income retirement. Um, and these consist of like how do you know if you've hit that number? Well, it's all the passive income you have from things like Social Security or any pensions from like jobs or anything like that, or if you bought annuities, any annuities you have, plus all the net cash flow from all your rental properties. This is after all your property management, your taxes, your insurance, your mortgage payment, a vacancy allowance, like all that stuff. Any net cash flow from those count towards your um, target monthly income and retirement. Sorry, I had to take a drink. And in addition to that, your yearly safe withdrawal rate times any money that you have invested in assets, like your stock market stuff or your bond stuff or whatever it is. So a combination of all three of those things, any passive income, social security, pensions, annuities, those types of things, net cash flow from rentals, and then any yearly safe withdrawal rate times your invested assets. The sum of all of those combined determines whether you have achieved your minimum target monthly income retirement or you have not. So if it exceeds that, then you are financially independent, your assets are producing enough for you to live on. If you're underneath that, then you haven't quite reached that yet. Now, the target monthly income in retirement is different for each city. And you're like, why is it different for each city? Shouldn't everybody have a target monthly income of $5,000 a month or $10,000 a month or $20,000 a month? And that is the problem, right? The problem is somebody living in, I don't know, Uh, Detroit, Michigan might have a very different monthly number than someone living in San Jose, California. Those are two very different markets with two very different living expenses. And so somebody might have a number that's like $5,000 a month living in one, and someone might have a $10,000 a month living in another or more. Okay, And so I, I calculate a different one, which means that everybody in each city is working toward a different goal. So you can't just automatically look at and say, oh, it takes them you know, 30 years to be financially independent in one city and 20 years to be financially independent in another city and say, oh, those are sort of equivalent. They're not really equivalent because one may be uh, like working towards $6,000 a month in financial independence, and the other one may be working toward $12,000 a month. And the property values in one may be very different than the property values in another. So... Because property prices vary in each of the 300 different cities, and the rents vary in each of the 300 different cities, and the taxes and the insurance, all of these things vary by city, that means that each one is different. And because of that, the income in general, and I'm sure there's lots of exceptions, right? But the income in general would vary for somebody living in those cities. You get paid more for working in California than you do in Detroit, Michigan. As just an example, right? I'm not making any judgment like calls or anything like that. I'm just telling you that they are different. And so because property prices and rents vary, income is going to vary depending on the city. Therefore, we adjust the income that you need, that we kind of model in that city to be able to buy an owner-occupant property. So what we basically do, not going to get into the crazy math of it, but I basically say, look, you know, the general rule of thumb, and there's lots of exceptions to this, but the general rule of thumb is we'd like to see someone spend about a third of their gross income on housing. So I says, okay, let's figure out what a, a typical median priced house was in that particular market and what the payment on that typical median priced house was, you know, based on that city's prices and taxes, insurance, and all this stuff. And then let's multiply that number by three. And that'll give us a really rough idea of what somebody in that city would need to be earning in order to be able to afford a house in that city. That's the really rough version of how this works. Of course, if you don't like my assumptions, you can change them. Okay. So don't get hung up on my assumptions about it. Okay. So you can go change them there. We do have a minimum. So like if you're in a market with really, really inexpensive housing, we do say, Hey, look, your minimum monthly income is $5,000 per month. And the thought behind that for me was, you know, you could probably, a married couple can probably go get relatively minimum wage type jobs and earn $5,000 a month in our current environment, okay? And that may change over time. Maybe we'll, if, if you say, hey, James, you know, the math you're doing here, it's not right. You should really do it this way. Reach out to me via email. And if you have a really good point, maybe I'll change it. Maybe I'll say, look, you're right. You know, I should change that. I should do it a different way. Okay. So because the property prices are different, because the income is different, we adjust the income to be whatever that person can afford uh, to buy an owner-occupant property in that city. Therefore, what we we set the the target for them to be financially independent for is that income. So if you had to earn $6,000 to be financially independent, $6,000 to be able to buy a house in that market, I'm saying, look, your target to be financially independent is to replace that $6,000 a month. And so it varies by city. So someone earning more and living in a more expensive city needs to earn a higher target monthly income retirement to be able to be considered financially independent. And someone living in a less expensive market on the other end, earning less from their job has a lower threshold to be considered financially independent. So that's why the numbers differ in the city that you're doing. As I've been saying this whole time, if you don't like my assumptions, you've got at least two options, at least two. First, drop me an email, tell me why you think I should change for a city. It is very possible that I don't know your city, like you know it, and my number is off. And so you could say to me, hey, James, you know, your property values for this city are, are really high. They should be about $50,000 lower or $50,000 higher. Please change it. And I'll go look it up and we'll, we'll talk about it. And I, if I say, yeah, you're right, I should do that, then we could change it and everything else in the future will be done that way. Or the other option is, and this is the one where you don't even have to contact me. You just copy the scenario for your city, the link I already gave you, to your own account and change any of the assumptions to better match your reality. You can get a discount, great. You're buying lower price properties, you're buying more expensive, you make more, you're starting with a different amount, awesome. You can modify any of those things to your situation and do that. That's what's great about being able to do this. I give you a starting point, but then you can model it yourself, okay? Okay, so what income, uh, target monthly income in retirement did I use for your city? If you're on your city's page, Again, go to that realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, or I'll put a direct link in the show notes to your city, uh, but you can go there and, and get that done. Under the scenario section, you can see exactly what I used for your minimum target monthly income retirement or lean fire. And it's right here. If you're looking at the video, it's right here where I blurred out the numbers. And the reason I blurred out the numbers is your numbers are going to be different. I didn't want you to just think that your numbers were automatically going to be what I showed on the screen. Okay. So you'll see this same value in their monthly income when we get to that here in a little bit. Um, and that will, will also see your ideal, which is kind of like your fat fire number we just talked about. And if you don't like any of my assumptions, the button right above that confirm copy, that's where you copy it to your account so you could change all the assumptions and do that. Okay? All right. Just moving down that page that you're on now. Continue down the page. We next show you your net worth. And that shows you the entire 60 year period that we modeled for you. And again, yours is gonna be different. It's gonna have different numbers on there, but this shows you the net worth of someone doing the really basic nomad strategy of buying a property, moving in, living there for a year, when they've saved up enough for another 5% down payment, then they buy their next property, they convert that one to a rental, and then they repeat this property until they have at max, the most 10 rentals, okay? And so you can see that there. The other thing you can see on this chart is there's these little vertical, almost like flags showing you when things happened. And so, for example, this one shows you that they bought a property um, or that they... Uh, Paid off a mortgage or bought a property, achieved financial independence. Those are what I call significant events, and they just highlight what happened and when, so you can kind of see it on a chart of a number in there. So you can all see all those numbers on there. Go look at your chart. Don't look at the one on the screen. It's shown as an example, but your city is going to be different right? Your ability to buy these properties as quickly or slowly as you can, or achieve financial independence is going to change. So the one on the screen is just a sample. You'll notice I even blurred out what city it's for, because it doesn't matter. Yours, you need to go look at yours. That's why this is all about doing Nomad in your city. Okay. All right, here's a great quote from George Box. All models are wrong, but some are useful. That's the quote, okay? Because any modeling I do here, it's not going to be 100% correct. It never can be. You know, what is the chance that appreciation is going to be exactly 3% per year and rent appreciation is going to be exactly 3% a year, inflation is going to be 3% a year, and you're going to get a raise at exactly 3% a year. And that the the return on the stock market account you have is exactly 7% a year, or that you're going to be able to get an interest rate of 7% every time you buy a property for the next 30 years or 40 years or whatever. The chance is almost zero. It's like, it doesn't, it's not going to happen, okay? So does doing this strategy mean that you're going to achieve the results I've shown here? Absolutely not. Now, as I say that, realize that doing some modeling and getting an idea of like in relative terms, this strategy is probably better than this one, especially if we kind of model what we really think is going to happen in the future and a range of things that can happen in the future. Absolutely helpful, very valuable to do. So this is the idea that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So this is useful. It's probably wrong now, okay? All right, so continuing on down the page that you're on there. um, Each city starts with 7% of the value of the property in their market in savings. Now, why did I pick 7%? You know, James, you know that I don't have 7% saved up or you know that I have, you know, 100% of the property value saved up. Why'd you pick 7%? Well, I did it because we have to start somewhere. And I wanted to say they got 5% as a down payment to buy their first property and as an owner-occupant, and some closing costs. So I said, okay, let's just pick a number. Let's pick 5% of whatever the value of, of properties are in that particular city, and some closing costs in there, maybe a little bit of uh, slush money to kind of add in there some reserves or something like that. So the idea is that they had 7% starting there. If you have a different number, <laughs> I feel like I'm a broken record, right? If you have a different number, you can change it. If you're starting with less or more, you can go ahead and change whatever you want there. And for markets where this 7% would be really, really, really low, I said, hey, look, a minimum of $10,000. So if you don't have $10,000, if it's going to be, if that calculation would have been less than 10, 10K, I just made it 10K to make it that way, okay? All right, and to simplify the modeling, we're assuming that you're keeping all of the money in a single, what I call a all-in-one account, and that all-in-one account earns 7% per year. Now, in reality, you know that you're probably going to have a checking account maybe a savings account and maybe a brokerage account where you kind of keep a little bit of money in your checking account, some more money in your savings account. And then the majority of your money invested in some type of brokerage account, stocks and bonds and mutual funds and whatever else you're going to do in there. So that you've got kind of these three accounts, but rather than track three different accounts and then say, okay, I'm moving money from one account to another account. I just said, look, we're just going to sort of put them into one bucket and we're going to call that this all in one account. And we're going to say that whole thing earn 7%. Because maybe your checking account earns 0 or .1, and maybe your savings account now earns I don't know 2%, and maybe your brokerage account earns I don't know 6 7 8 9 10%, whatever it earns. And I'm saying, look, if we average all those together, it's probably going to be about 7%. So, I just said, let's put it all in one account, make things really simple. All the money from all the rentals goes in there, all the down payments for all the properties comes out of there, any money you've got sitting in there is kind of just earning something. So, I said 7% for that, it's in this all-in-one. That's how it works. Now, This is really important and a really important concept for you to understand because we're going to get to some stuff here in a minute, okay? If at any time during the modeling, you run out of money where that all-in-one account goes to zero, right? Like you have negative cash flow and you're not saving enough from your job to be able to kind of hold the property or something like that. If you run out of money in that all-in-one account, we show that in what we call the default cash account. The default cash account is a magical account that keeps track of how much money you needed to add from outside the system in, okay? So it's our way of saying, look, if you ran the model the way that you set this up and you don't have enough money to do it because you have negative cash flow or you had this, you know, uh, some type of drawdown or, or whatever happened there and you ran out of money, this is the account where we track how much money you ran out of and how much you needed to add it. So that's sort of the model. We're going to talk about this here in a little bit because this is sort of like, you know, if, if you're in a market where it's really, really hard to make properties cash flow, especially if you're only putting 5% down, you're buying these properties as a nomad, then you may run out of money. And then we want to keep track of how much money in addition you needed in order to do this. And there's other things we're going to do in, in future classes. We're not going to do it in this class. I wanted to give you like a baseline and make everyone as close to this, as close to apples to apples comparison as I can, realizing that every market's different. Every market has different prices and you got to kind of change some stuff up. So, I, I tried to make it as close to possible as we do this, but realize that they're not all the same. And so when we do variations and we do this different modeling and you kind of see certain accounts losing money or needing more money or something like that, that's what we're going to get to. And I'll show you some charts here in a little bit. Okay, just moving down the page, it shows you two different charts, it shows you the all-in-one account, which... Most of the cities are going to show this similar curve where you start off with very little money. And as you put the payments down there, the account balance drops, but then eventually you get to the point where you've stopped buying properties or you have a lot of cash flow and it's not a money issue anymore. And your account balance continues to grow and and kind of, you know, continues to grow exponentially up like this. But then some of you are going to have this default cash account where you ran out of money and you needed to add more money to the system. And this one shows you that over, I don't know, about 20 years or so, you needed to add $25,000 to the system in order to do the model. So you'll be able to see that all in in your particular city, okay? All right, continuing on with accounts. So below the chart, it shows the starting assumptions for the account and how much we assume you started for in your city. So it shows you the name of your account, the blurred out thing that I'm showing you that I circled is how much you're starting in your account balance. And again, that's 7% of the property value. That's what we use as a default with a minimum of 10K. And then what the return is, at the start, the 7%. And then we also put in here this kind of like what your asset type is. And the only place this is really used, at least right now, is in when you're doing your asset allocation. When you want to say, you know, James, what percentage of my net worth is in real estate? What percentage of my net worth in stocks? Or what percentage of it is in bonds? You can do that with the software. And so what we said is this all in one account, we've classified that as sort of stocks. Even though in reality, as we talked about, it's probably a little bit of that is really your checking account. A little bit is probably your savings. And really the majority of it is probably stocks. We just said, look, this is all stocks. And we just kind of label it that way, okay? And when you go look at your asset allocation table later, it'll look like this. And the reason why I show this is just so you can see that. It shows you what percentage is stocks, what percentage is your bond-like real estate equity, and what percentage is your real estate equity. And I'm going to make a note to include this class in the show notes where I talk about... um, I think I called it asset allocation for real estate investors. I'll make a note to include that in the show notes in case you want to dive deeper into like asset allocation for real estate investors and stuff like that. Okay, we get a drink quick. Is this good stuff? You guys are all turkeyed out from your uh, Thanksgiving Day meal? Okay. Continuing on. So after the account section, there's the property section. So you, de- you see all the details, the assumptions about the property. So if you had more than one property, we would show those different ones here. Um, but for this one, since we're buying basically one owner-occupant property, we're moving in, we're living there for a year, and then we're converting it to a rental. When you buy the next one, we're using one templated property in order to replicate this. So right below the property headline is this thing called the cash flow power meter, and the cash flow power meter shows you how well. Right now, like when, you, when we set up the property, not like one, five or 10 or 15 years from now, but right now, if you could rent this property out, how well it would cash flow. And I'm not going to take the time because I'm, I'm probably going to go a little bit longer than I had hoped to go on this particular class, but um, there's a whole class on the cash flow power meter and I'll make a note to include that as well. Um, but this shows you basically... With a, a little visual gauge of how well the property is cash flowing, whether it has really negative cash flow, whether it has negative cash flow, including or not including the uh, depreciation benefit, or if it has negative cash flow, if you had a property a professional property manager, or if you have positive cash flow, even with a professional property manager, it kind of shows you where you are in that. And so that shows on the page for you so you can see it quickly. Okay, let's go through the property assumptions. And the property assumptions for your model is. It's made up of values that are the same no matter what city you're in, which I'll talk to all about those, and then which ones change based on city. So the city and state is going to be based on wherever you are. The property is a dynamic, reusable template of property that we could buy multiple copies of using rules. That just tells you that we're going to take one property and we're going to be buying the same property. And that property is going to be increasing in value as you buy it. So you're not buying you know, 10 properties at, you know, $100,000 or $200,000 or $500,000 or whatever prices are in your city, it's going to be $100,000 today, but a year from now, it's going to be 103,000. Next year, it's going to be 106 and change going to be, you know, 109 or whatever it is. So the property values go up. So you're buying more expensive properties as we model this and the rents are going up and all that stuff is being calculated for you. But this is what it is at the start. Uh, We're going to use rules in order to determine when we buy and sell these properties, which you'll see here in a second. And we're not selling this property. So in in the really basic model, all we're doing is acquiring properties and letting them cash flow. When we do future stuff, and this is where we're heading with this, this is why this was class one of a whole series, is the future was we're going to say, look, you know, we've got all this equity in properties, which we're not really making money on in our calculations for financial independence. What if we sold off some properties and paid off other ones? Well, that's super interesting. So when we do these different variations in the future, all these different kind of like alternative very, very alternative very, at their variations, alternative scenarios on the baseline scenario, you'll see me do things like buy twelve properties and then pay off, you know, four of them. You know, buy twelve properties and sell off half of them and pay off the remaining ones. You know, we'll do stuff like that in the future, or pay off properties with cash flow, or or sell off all the properties and invest in stocks. We'll do all the different modeling so you'd see it, not today. Just too much stuff to do today. Okay. So um, what account are you using for your down payment? Your income and expense to a property. We're using that all in one account earning 7% per year. And then here's one that changes based on your city. The property value is X and the purchase price We're basically saying that you're buying the properties for full value, which we will do models where you buy at a slight discount or slight premium if you're in a hot market. And that goes up at a rate of 3% per year. So we've assumed all cities are appreciating at the same rate, which may not be a great assumption, honestly, right? Because some markets actually appreciate a little bit better than others. Some appreciate a little bit worse than others. And so you may want to go in there when you're doing your own modeling, copy to your account and change that assumption. But for the sake of this of today and our baseline modeling, everyone goes up at 3% which is the rate of inflation historically over a very long period of time. And this number I didn't pull out of the air. This is based on um, Case-Shiller data showing like a hundred years of housing data for the entire United States shows that housing on average over a very long period of time has historically gone up around 3% per year. So I didn't just pull that number out of the air. It's a real number. Uh, down payment, 5% of purchase price for down payment. And then I assumed 1% of the purchase price in closing costs at the time of purchase. So you got those two in there for the assumptions. I've also assumed that you were unable to negotiate with the seller to get the seller to pay any of your closing costs. In a really soft market, you may be able to get a seller to pay some of your closing costs. In a really hot market, it'd be really hard to do that. Page two, property assumptions. Okay. 7% is the mortgage interest rate with a term of 360 months. So a 30-year fixed rate, 7% mortgage interest rate. And a week ago, that was probably a really good number, a little bit more than a week ago. Uh, But today, it's probably a little bit lower than that, right? It's probably in the high sixes. And so I'll change those. Well, if you go and you're listening to this recording, it may be different by the time you get there. But it doesn't vary by city. I want to point that out. All the interest rates for all the cities that we're modeling are all the same. Uh, Because you put less than 20% down, you have private mortgage insurance, which I'll make a note to put in the, the private mortgage insurance class in the show notes. So you guys will have access to that in case you wanna look at it. Uh, So private mortgage insurance at a rate of 0.85% of the initial loan amount until the loan to value drops below 80% and then it falls off. So we're assuming you're getting a conventional type of loan where the PMI drops off at 80%. Now this next one does change for your city. X dollars per month in rent, but rent increases at a rate of three percent per year. So your city is going to have whatever rents are for your city. And again, if you're like James, your numbers are off. Let me know or change it yourself, and you can go do that. But I use uh, rent data from a source, so I actually pulled rent data. This is not me just arbitrarily picking a number, and it's not me saying, "Hey, I'm using the one percent rule or two percent rule or one point five percent rule or uh, you know three percent rule or you know whatever." I'm not using rules of thumb. I'm actually using data. Okay. Um, Next one, 3% of the monthly income is the assumed vacancy rate. I didn't pull vacancy rate data. You could argue that maybe I should have, or you could say, hey, look, if you're doing property management correctly, you're starting at least 60 days in advance of your property going vacant before you find your new tenant. You're requiring notice. You're doing all the things that we normally teach you in the property management class. A 3% vacancy is probably your target anyway. Okay. Ideally, we're trying to do 0%, but in reality, if we're going to stay about 3%, that's pretty good because you have unexpected things to come up with tenants, right? So uh, 10% of the monthly income is the assumed maintenance rate. You could argue that's low. You could argue that's high depending on you know types of properties you're buying, uh, but it's the same for every city. Changes by city, um, X percent of the value of the property each year is the assumed property taxes rate. So I did go look at what property taxes rates were per city. This honestly is one of the uh, numbers that I'm less sure about. So if you're looking at these numbers, you're like, James, that's really off for our city. Let me know. And I I would be much more inclined to change that than some of the other ones, which are based on data I have. I did use this data, but I I don't like the source of this data. I guess I'll say it that way. Based on the initial value of X, that's about Y per year property tax that start. And it changes as the property changes value. So your taxes will increase as your property value goes up, which is how it works in reality. And then this also changes by city for your your property insurance rate. Oh, I was talking about... um, taxes when I was really thinking about insurance. Both of them are the same though. You know, they, they both vary by city and I had sources for both of them. And so if you think either the insurance or the taxes are different, let me know, but they do vary and they increase over time with your city stuff. Uh, this is a residential property and 15% of the purchase price is considered the value of the land. So we're assuming you're buying detached single family homes or uh, townhomes type, type properties where you have land and only part of the value is actually depreciating. I'm not going to get into all the tax stuff here, but that is the assumption that we use for that. If you want to change that, you can change it in the thing. Then underneath all these, those are the assumptions for properties, by the way. Then underneath all these assumptions are the return quadrants. And I'll put a link in the show notes. I already know to do this for you. I'll put a link in the show notes for the return quadrants and walk you through what all these different ones are. But these are really easy ways for you to see your overall return you're earning on a property. And this is a snapshot for like right now, when you go to buy the property, it shows you the amount you're earning in dollars from the four different areas, appreciation, cash flow, debt pay down, and the tax benefits. And then it shows you the total. And then it shows you your return on investment how much you had to invest and what your return on investment was for those four areas plus the total. And then I went and I did, um, I did the one where you include reserves because if you're doing analysis, you really should be including reserves in your analysis. And so I have a whole class on that. It's called uh, Everything You Learn About Deal Analysis Is Wrong. And it's all about the return quadrants where we take into account reserves. I'll, I'll put a link to the show notes for that class too, but I'll, I'll do more. I'm going to be doing additional classes on these in the future. So if you're like, hey, look, I can't go watch the other one. Just pay attention to the future episodes and I'll get to them eventually. It's just, there's so much to do. (laughs) So much to do and a limited amount of time to do it. And so I'll get to all those, but that's what's going on. So this will show you all the return numbers for that city, for that property. And it gives you an idea, and with that financing. So it gives you a quick glance at how these properties are performing and what they look like. So go look at that on your particular city and you'll see it. Okay, so... For scenarios, we've got accounts, which is that all-in-one account that we made here, and the default cash account. The properties, which in this case is one template property that we're going to buy multiple ones of. And then we have these things called rules that we use to manipulate accounts and properties. And so... Here are the rules. The first rule is you buy a property when the account has a down payment and it will show you a chart showing you when you bought properties based on this. And you can ignore this one on your screen. Go look at the one on your city to see exactly when you're buying properties on this. But it shows you how many properties you bought each month that you bought a property. Okay, so the rule runs this particular rule buy a property when the account is down payment. This and I, I did a class, must have been just before Thanksgiving, where I did a class and I went through each of the rules. So go watch that on the website. It's up, uh, it's up now. Um, so just go to real estate financial planner or go listen to a podcast episode of that one. And I walk you through all these different rules and when to use them. But this rule is the rule for buy a property when the account has a down payment. It runs for the entire scenario. So it's running for that whole seven 20 years, but it stops when you buy 10 properties. So Realize that it's still running, but you're just not doing anything productive with it. So the rule will buy another copy of that template property, the one that is the nomad property for whatever city you're in. uh, Whenever the all-in-one account earning 7% has enough for a down payment and closing costs, plus at least six months of reserves for all the properties owned. So we're saying, look, once you get to the point where you have another 5% down payment, plus some closing costs, plus six months of reserves on all the other properties that we currently own, then go ahead and buy another property. Buy another copy of this property. And it's buying one that is you know more expensive because as time goes on and rents have gone up a little bit. Okay, It also checks your debt to income ratio to make sure that you're below 45%. So it verifies that you have 45% debt to income when you buy that property and it, it checks that for you to do that. And then it will only buy 10 properties maximum. If you sell any, by the way, it, it, we don't in this model, but if you do sell any, then realize it will try to replace them. So if you're buying a property and selling properties and doing that stuff, this rule, if you keep it running, will try to replace the properties you sold. The next rule is paycheck and personal expenses. So this is a uh, chart, yours will be very similar where it's showing you uh, the red line is what your paychecks are and then your personal expenses, um, including real estate is shown in this orange. Um, and so, I'll I'll have to do a whole nother class just explaining what's going on in this chart because there's a lot of really cool stuff happening here. But this is showing, shows you what it is for there. Uh, And then here are the uh, assumptions for this rule. So as a default, we're trying to say, look, you're saving $1,000 a month. And some people are automatically like, what, $1,000 a month? I only make $3,000 a month. There's no way I'm saving $1,000 a month. And someone who's earning $20,000 a month is saying $1,000 a month. Yeah, that's nothing right? So I had to pick something, and you can go change the assumptions, but I had to pick something, and so I picked $1,000 a month as a default starting position for everybody. So this rule runs for the entire scenario. You're depositing both your paycheck, and you're pulling your expenses out of that same all-in-one account. Both the paycheck and personal expenses will increase with inflation. So the amount you earn from your job goes up with inflation. The amount of your expenses goes up with inflation. Your housing costs goes up with whatever the property values are, interest rates, and all that payment stuff. So not technically with inflation but it's something you know that looks a lot like inflation uh, changes to so this this actually varies based on city the gross paycheck that you have varies based on city and it is why we talked about before with that target monthly income retirement being able to afford a house in that marketplace and we've assumed a tax rate the effective tax rate of 20% on your paycheck that's another assumption if you think hey look my tax rate is much lower much higher you can go ahead and change that and then your net paycheck after taxes is whatever it is that gets changed. Uh, based on where you are, what city you're in. And then whether or not this paycheck continues after you achieve financial independence, in this case, it gets removed. So the idea basically is once you get enough assets where you have enough income coming in from your assets that you no longer need to work, then stop working. Otherwise your income will keep going and it will look like you're still working through this whole thing. So what we've said is, look, go ahead and stop the income part of this rule, not the expenses, but go ahead and stop the income part of this rule once you get to the point where your assets are being financially independent. And then the amount of your personal expenses are also adjusted by city. So if you're making $20,000, it's not like you have a $2,000 expense. They they kind of scale with whatever your income is so that you're saving about $1,000 a month as your default when you start. Okay, any questions on this? I know I'm going fast and hard, but uh, people are not asking questions. So if you have questions, go ahead and let me know. Otherwise I will keep going. All right, so significant events and percent of goal achieved. So this is still going down that page. This shows you what percentage of that goal toward being financially independent you've achieved. So the goal line is this little dotted line at 100%. Once the chart goes above this line, that means that your passive income and your cash flow from your rental properties and your safe withdrawal rate times, whatever you've got it invested in, the combination of those things has exceeded your living expenses, the target monthly income that you set. Okay. And so once it gets above there, which happens right here, then that person is financially independent. Before then, this just shows you what percentage of the way there you are. So when you're first starting off, you're at zero, very, very low. You're not really there. And then right here, you know, you buy another property and it actually drops down because you got rid of some of your money and it probably didn't cash flow in that particular case, but it keeps growing and doing that. And so over time, you eventually get to the point where you are financially dependent and there will be some cities where you will not have achieved this. And don't think that's a failure. That's not that you failed. Because you still have accumulated, in in the overwhelming majority cases, a huge net worth. You have a whole bunch of equity and properties, which equity and properties doesn't count toward this calculation, right? So you could go sell off these things and invest in stocks. and, And honestly, maybe some of it gets supplemented with Social Security. So maybe really you only need to do 80%. Or maybe, you know, I'm earning whatever it is. Um, you know, $10,000 a month for my job, but I, to be able to retire, I only really need seven. And we've assumed you need 10. Okay. So there's all sorts of reasons why don't get stressed out over that. And then significant events, this lists out all the different things that happened and what month they happened in, um, in this particular scenario. So you can go look through the list and see exactly what happened. And then of course you can copy the scenario to your account using that button as well. Okay. So that is what I intended to cover To show you what nomading in your city is like, go look at your city. Go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, pick your city out from the list or the city that's closest to what your city is like. Go look at the details, copy into your account, do all the changes and stuff like that. This is the starting point because once we get here, I'm going to start comparing nomad to buying 20% rentals, buying 25% down rentals, um, buying free and clear rentals, you know, buying a property to live in, but then buying 20% down rentals or buying nomad properties and paying them off faster or buying nomad properties and selling off half of them. I'll do all these variations for you. And we'll kind of go over those in the podcast. But I wanted to give you an idea of like what the baseline is, what the baseline assumptions are. That way, next time, I don't have to go through all these assumptions again. I can just say, it's exactly like your baseline, except we change these two things. That is why this class exists. It's to give you the baseline so that you understand it, all the baseline assumptions. Then, when we go compare them, I'll be able to say, doing this strategy versus this strategy gives you this much more net worth. It's this much more risky because we'll do some measurements of risk. This one has more cash flow. This is a better strategy. This is a worse strategy for you. We can go through and do all those different things. However, now that I've done that, I've got some bonuses. I've got some really cool stuff that I want to show you. It'll take, um, I don't know, hopefully not very long, five minutes or so. But then I've got some really crazy stuff to share with you where now that I've done modeling for all 300 cities, I can share with you stuff that I don't think exists. And so this is the idea, right? I told you earlier, my favorite part of reading these real estate investing books is when they give you the model and they show you how it worked. The problem with doing that was they picked the city where they were doing the model And that's not my city and so my numbers are all very different and so the question i've gotten in the past is james because i have been teaching nomad stuff primarily in northern colorado for i don't know a decade um yeah probably about a decade so so the, the question is always does nomad work in x city or it only works here because of blank right so i said okay now i finally got data and i could show you does nomad work in these other cities And what's the problem with it? And how can we fix it and stuff like that? So let's go ahead and do some summarizing of what it looks like. So this is now a chart showing you each dot represents one of those 300 cities. And on the bottom, it shows you the price of properties in that market. On the left-hand side are really inexpensive properties. On the right-hand, I'm sorry. On the left-hand side, it's all really inexpensive properties, cheap properties. On the right-hand side, it's all very expensive properties, okay? But up and down, it shows you how many months it took you to be financially independent in that market, knowing that the property values are more expensive and I got to earn more money. And so I got to replace more money. So we've, all the assumptions I told you about earlier, they're all included here, okay? But this chart shows you that there are definitely a whole bunch up here that did not achieve financial independence. They never got to that 100% mark by month 720, by 60 years in, that's the end of when we modeled. We modeled 60 years, okay? So there's a whole bunch that did that but it's not exclusively really expensive markets. It's true that the really expensive markets, the ones that have really expensive properties, they were more likely to be up here in my opinion, right? Just looking at the data, looks like these ones were, were not achieving financial independence. but there are plenty of ones in these lower price markets where they did not achieve financial independence either. So as we go through these, doing these variations, we are going to address that and how to solve those issues of being in a market where, look, it's, it didn't get me to financial independence doing the re- regular baseline scenario of Nomad in 60 years. Well, let's figure out how to solve that. So we'll do that in other classes. Okay. But also to point out that just because it didn't get a hundred percent of what the income you were earning and replace that doesn't mean it was a failure. And I'll show you here another chart that shows you net worth and how net worth is pretty extreme in some of these markets. And so Just because you only have a net worth of whatever, $3 million, $5 million, doesn't mean you failed, right? This is still a really good strategy. And then you may have to do some other things or kind of readjust or whatever it is there. But I wanted to show you that there's a whole bunch of these that achieve financial independence. There is a slight skewing where in these less expensive markets that they achieve it faster. In these more expensive markets, they achieve it a little slower. But part of that is when you only have to achieve a goal of $3,000 a month, because that's what your target monthly income retirement is, or $5,000, whatever the minimum was, then it's easier to achieve in some ways. So because the prices of houses gets more expensive, it means you need to achieve a higher level of standard of living in order to be financially independent. So I just wanted to show you this kind of summary chart showing you how Nomad has performed in all these different markets. And then if you want to drill in, go look at your city, because that's what we did. So each one of these dots is one of those cities that we got to put up there. Okay, so that's there. Now, I, j- just because I can, primarily, I want to show you that you can highlight any state's number. So if you're like, hey, how does my state look? I just pulled up one state, it happens to be Colorado because that's where I live. Um, but you can go look at where the different cities for Colorado are. They're the blue dots, they're highlighted. All the gray dots are still there and you can see those, but you can kind of get a feel for a particular state. And if you go to the uh, model page and you click on one of the state titles, it'll take you to this chart. So then you can see any state you want to do there to see for the whole state. And I'll, I'll continue to add additional charts and summarize things for you. And I'll put it on those pages so you'll be able to see those as well. Okay, so that was price of property versus how long it took you to be financially independent in that city. Now what I'm going to show you is the price of property and what percentage of 100% of being financially independent they achieved. Because this one was... Hey, look, this is the number of months. This is how fast it was. Now I'm showing you, you know, at what point, what percentage of being financially independent are you? So are you 70% of the way to $10,000 a month? Are you at $7,000 a month, in other words? And so this one shows you the same type of data, price of properties, really cheap stuff on the left, really expensive stuff on the right. And then what percentage of it you were at the end of our modeling at 60 years. Because there's a whole bunch where they achieved their goal, which I'm ignoring anything over hundred percent. I just said, look, you you achieved your goal. I'm not going to look at that percentage. These are all the ones that didn't quite achieve it. And a whole bunch of them were a significant way there. And I didn't show you a couple that were negative. There's some there's some markets where like by buying properties, it hurts you. Right. And so I'll show you that here on the next slide, but these ones shows you what percentage you are. And you can go click on, you know, the link and show what city it is, or go look at your individual city to see, but not all of these are like complete failure. It's like, uh, these ones they had eighty percent of their goal. These ones hit you know, between sixty and eighty percent. These ones are a little smaller, you know forty percent, twenty percent. You can get a feel for that. And then these are the ones I showed that were negative. So there's a handful of ones where it actually was negative towards your goal. You had negative cash flow on your property still, um, even at year sixty. So there's one, two, three, four, five, probably five out of three hundred or so were really bad markets. And those markets we'll have to do stuff about. And uh, I will give you a hint. I think most of those are in California. Not judging, just saying very expensive market. All right, so this is the chart where I'm showing you same idea, net worth though, on this axis. So this one shows you that there's really cheap houses, really expensive houses, and this is the net worth. Now, I want to point out to you, there are some of these where you end up with almost a billion dollars at the end of 60 years. A billion dollars. They're outliers, there's, you know, a couple over 500,000. I'm sorry, 500 million, not 500,000. So it's really hard to see what's going on down here. So because of that, I'm going to ignore all the ones above 100 million, okay? So this is the chart showing you all the different cities, what price houses are in those markets, and then what their net worth was, including all the stuff in their accounts, the stock market account that they've got, and then all the equity they have in their properties. Those two combined are calculated for net worth, and it shows you what their net worth were. So even if you had a, a, a scenario where you didn't quite reach your goal of uh, having passive income enough to be financially independent, but you had a net worth of $20 million, is that enough? I think for most people, that's enough, right? And if you, it's not enough for you, then go look at your city and make adjustments. But you know, a lot of the times we look at this thing, we say, oh, they failed. They didn't achieve 100% of their financial independence goal. But really, they've got $14 million worth of real estate. Well, um, maybe that's enough, right? Like depending on what your situation is, what you need. Especially if you know you're you're 80 years old and you've got 10 million dollars left, you you might be able to decline the value of the assets you have, like to dip into the, the principal of your assets and spend those as you go. Because the other model, in theory, is not depleting your assets, right? It's it's passive cash flow, so that you're not dipping into the value of the real estate or anything. Okay. All right. So that was net worth. Now this is the one where I was like, okay, show me how much people run out of money based on home price. So uh, really cheap homes over here, really expensive homes over here. This is how much negative that like default cash account, the one where we measure how much you had to put into an account in there. So this measures how much you had to put in to do that. So there's a whole bunch that were zero up and down the price range. It tends to be the cheaper properties that you don't have to put money in though. As you get into much more expensive properties, those you tend to have to put more money in. Okay. Now it's it's hard to see because some of these cities need to add a lot of money. So like these ones down here. So let's zoom in. But before we do, let's kind of poke at California a little bit. I I love California, right? But let's poke at them a little bit. The ones in blue are all the California cities. Do you notice a pattern? A lot of the California cities, not all of them, but a lot of the California cities are the ones that required a lot of extra money. So we're going to have to do some things to solve California issues, right? Well, we'll kind of address those things. But a lot of the other ones were not Californian, so they didn't have that issue. But I'm zooming in now, same thing, how much account balance, and I cut it off. I said, look, if you had to put in more than a million, I'd just cut those off just to kind of zoom in a little bit. And you can see there's, there's some that need a significant amount of money, you know, based on much higher prices. Anything under, I don't know here, you know, 300,000, 400,000, a lot of those markets, you need to add very little, if anything at all. And if you zoom in even more and say, look, let's cut it off at 200,000, you can see there's, you know, there's definitely some outliers here where you need to add some money. And we can talk about solutions for that and how to deal with it and saving up longer. And there's lots of different things we could do to solve this problem, which we'll get into in future classes. But I just want to show you the data today. And then here's the line where a lot of them need zero or very, very small amounts. Okay. That's the majority of the data there. Oh, and I just pulled up California of the small end too. So like zooming in just the 200K, it's still a lot of the California stuff even when we just get down and we're looking at the 200k or less numbers in there so this this turned into a california bashing session but it wasn't intended to just we're we're gonna need to solve some california issues which i think california knows that (laughs) not like california has i'm just i'm digging myself a hole here i love california that's all i'm gonna say so you guys know what i'm talking about all right so let's wrap this up so you can see the detailed assumptions for the baseline nomad scenario in your city. There's other ones there too. If you want to go look at those, you can, you can kind of jump ahead in the curriculum if you want to, but I'll cover a lot of those. If you don't like any of my assumptions, let me know and you can change them. So either way. And as I said, this is just the beginning, okay? We've already started modeling variations on this and I plan to add dozens of additional ones to compare how making changes to this baseline plan or trying a completely different strategy will perform in your city with your city's numbers and your specific situation. So stay tuned for those future classes. In the meantime, feel free to explore the stuff, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model for your city, and that's what we'll do. That's all I've got, folks. Any questions, any concerns? I know there's, I know I went fast. Anything coming up? Okay. Well, if I got nothing, I'm going to get off because I'm going to go grab myself breakfast. It is this day after Thanksgiving and I'm going to enjoy a leisurely breakfast this morning, but I want to make sure I got this out for you guys. So hopefully that was good. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening on the recording. I will talk to you all soon. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. cash flow on rental properties in Berkeley is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Berkeley that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.